All right, everybody, welcome back. This is cool. I like that it's harder and harder every week to convince you guys to sit back down and listen to me. It's, it means you're really well connected to each other. That's a good thing. Uh, we're going to be in Mark chapter 3 today. We'll finish Mark chapter 3. So if you have a copy of God's Word, I think it's worth you turning there in your own copy of the Bible. If you would like a scripture journal that walks you through the book of Mark and gives you a lot of space to take notes, we have many of those. They're out at the welcome desk in the lobby. You can go get one right now if you want to. They're free to you. We make those available anytime we preach through a book of the Bible just as a tool to try to help you navigate and have space to take notes. Uh, one update for you guys. I told you last week that I was going to try to record an extra session of teaching, and then we were going to push that out on the website and through the podcast this last week. Um, I did not do that, and so I want to say sorry to you. I'm going to do that. I'm not avoiding those verses. I just didn't have time to get to them last week, and I had some extra meetings and things that happened this last week. I just didn't get to it, so I will. Probably most of you don't care, but it'll get to you eventually, and if you want to hear that teaching, you'll have a chance to do that uh, very, very soon. So uh, we're going to jump right in with it today. We're going to go to Mark chapter 3, verse 31. We're going to read through the end of the chapter and then talk about what in the world does Jesus mean. Okay, so Jesus' mother and his brothers came. Where did they come? They came to the city of Capernaum where Jesus was teaching and living and healing people, and they came from the city of Nazareth. You've heard me call Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth, in a way of Nazareth is kind of like his last name. That's how it went back then. You didn't always have two names. People just knew you from where you were from because the town was small enough. There probably weren't two Jesuses in your town. So Jesus of Nazareth was good enough. His family traveled down from Nazareth to Capernaum, and when they got there, they stood outside. This is the next part of verse 31. And they sent to him, and they called him. In other words, they passed a message to Jesus. Now, you might be thinking, why would they have to do that? Why would they not just approach him face-to-face, -face, pull him aside, ask him what's going on, catch up with him that way? There's some context to the story that helps us understand that Jesus was not easy to get to. He was not easily accessible. Because why? Verse 32. A crowd was sitting around him. Earlier in chapter 3, Mark tells us that the crowd was so dense with people that even at mealtimes, Jesus he could not eat. He could not physically make his way through this mass, this throng of people to wherever the food was laid out, whether it was outside or inside. He was struggling to do that, and word of that was traveling fast, and that's part of what alarmed or upset his family and caused them to pack up, come down to Capernaum, and try to help him, try to rescue him from himself, they thought. So they said to him, okay, the crowd is sitting around him, and word gets to Jesus, your mother and your brothers are outside. So we can assume Jesus is inside, probably inside of Peter's house there in Capernaum, the same place Jesus stayed most of the time that he was passing through the city of Capernaum in the region of Galilee. The crowd tells Jesus that his mother and brothers are outside and that they are seeking him. Verse 33, and he answered them, the crowd, with this great Mother's Day question. Who are my mother and my brothers? Who, he says, who? Who's out there that wants me, that needs my attention, that thinks they have something to say to me? And then before anybody can answer, he looks around, verse 34, at those who have been sitting around him, and he makes this statement. He says, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and my sister and my mother, my family. What is Jesus doing? Jesus is essentially redefining his listeners' understanding of family. Now, we're going to spend some time today trying to understand what Jesus is not saying, what he is saying, and then I'll do my best to explain to you some implications, some things that sort of flow out of the point Jesus is making that relate to the way that we do life and the way that we understand family. But 
Before we get that far, it's important to sort of set the scene once again. Who is with Jesus? What is going on around him? So we'll back up before we go forward. Jesus is, of course, as I've said, in Capernaum. Capernaum is a city on the edge of the Sea of Galilee. You and I would probably consider it to be a large saltwater lake, but in this day and age, it functioned as a sea. It was impossible to cross by swimming. You had to have a boat. It was full of fish, and there were cities all the way around the edge of the water in a ring shape because they had no good way to move water, so they moved to the water. Uh, and that region is known as the region of Galilee. And so there's Capernaum, and there's Bethsaida, and there's a handful of other cities where we've already seen Jesus do miracles, where we've seen him work and teach and go away to be alone and spend the night healing and praying and all of these different things. We've gotten to know Jesus in the context of the region of the Sea of Galilee. But Jesus is not alone. There's a large crowd with him that sort of ebbs and flows as he goes from place to place, it's always made up of different people than it was the day before. That's sort of what it means to be a celebrity, is there's always somebody following you, but you don't know them, and they don't really know you. Uh, this crowd is almost always present in Jesus' life, to the point that Jesus has to go out of his way to remove himself from the crowd, to separate himself, to step back and find a little bit of alone time, even if it's just time to teach his followers outside of the context of this larger crowd. Uh, between the crowd, then, and Jesus is another group, what I would call his followers, or we might refer to as disciples. Um, disciples are apprentices, they're followers, they're students. They are people who intend to do what Jesus says to do. They intend to put Jesus' teaching into practice. This is where you and I might find ourselves if we were standing in Capernaum in 30 AD as Jesus burst onto the scene. They want to be the kind of people that Jesus describes as sheep. So he's just about to start telling stories. He does that beginning in chapter 4, where we'll be next week. But he's going to tell a lot of stories, and he often uses the figurative language of sheep and goats. And he talks about sheep knowing the shepherd's voice. He's speaking about himself, that people who are called by him, who belong to him, will recognize him, will want to do what he says. Even if they don't know how to do it on their own, he'll empower them with the Holy Spirit to do that. And then there are those who are goats, who may still hang around in the flock and may occasionally bump up against the sheep or bump up against the shepherd, but really have no intention of following or listening. The point I'm making is this. Even Jesus makes a distinction between the crowd and those who are actually following him in their heart and in their spirit. Now, among the disciples, there's a group of 12 that we met a couple of weeks ago who we'll refer to as apostles. Apostle simply means sent one. It comes from a word in Greek that you don't know how to say, and I'm not going to say it to you because you'll never remember, but just trust me, it means those who have been sent. If a disciple is someone who has been gathered in to follow, that's sort of stage one of the process. These 12 apostles have been gathered together to send out. They have a mission. There's something that they're supposed to do. There's somewhere that they are supposed to go. Now, the disciples are many at this point. There's probably several hundred at a, at a point in the book of Luke. Luke identifies that there were about 72 disciples, but it's hard to know if that's literally the number 72 or if he's using figurative language because that's a multiple of 12, and 12 is a very important number in the sort of the Hebrew world. We don't really do that with numbers the way that they did, but just know that there were at least 72, up to potentially several hundred people who were following Jesus, intending to become his disciples, intending to be apprentices of his and take on his way of life and enter into the kingdom of God that they heard him spend so much time speaking about. Now, the apostles are a group of 12. You remember that we talked about that a couple of weeks ago. And 12 is significant in the context of Hebrew people, which is who Jesus is living among. It's what he was himself. Because there were 12 tribes in the nation of Israel. So 12 matters a lot. The reason that, God, that Jesus chose to call 12 apostles to himself 
is to represent the 12 tribes of Israel that at this point in history have basically abandoned God and turned their back on him. Jesus is redoing what God the Father did in the Old Testament to build for himself a new nation of people, which includes a new kind of family. That's the tie-in for what he's saying today, is even his 12 apostles represent a new and different kind of family from the one that he was born into, his biological or his family of origin. Now, you may remember that when God spoke to Moses, okay, so pause Jesus in, in, in the AD years. We're going to go way B.C. to Moses. If you were here when we preached through the book of Exodus, you remember that when God came to Moses the first time, he presented himself in a bush that looked like it was burning, but didn't create smoke, wasn't hot, wasn't burning up the middle of the bush. And so we call it the burning bush, but it really wasn't burning. It just looked like it was burning, and that's a technicality that matters to me that you probably don't care, so there you go. Out of that bush, God spoke. He made his presence known, and this is how he introduced himself. The very first time he'd ever encountered Moses. Moses, who is going to go on to be the liberator, the vindicator, the most important man in the history of Israel until Jesus himself arrives. This is what God says. He says, hello, Moses. It's me, the God of, and then he says three people's names, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Okay, Abraham is a guy God calls out, tells Abraham, you and your wife can't have kids. I'm going to give you children. I'm going to give you so many children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren that eventually there will be more people on earth with your bloodline than there are stars in the sky at night. The first son that they have together uh, is a guy named Isaac. Isaac gets that blessing from Abraham. He becomes the next link in the chain of how God's going to populate the earth with this new nation he's building. And then his son is a guy named Jacob. Jacob has 12 sons. Eventually, Jacob has his name changed from Jacob to Israel, which is where the nation gets its name. It's named after him. And those 12 sons each become regional tribal leaders. And each of the 12 tribes of Israel is named after one of those sons. Benjamin, Issachar, Joseph, etc., etc. You can read the book of Exodus if you want to know more about that. So Jesus has called to himself 12 disciples who he's made apostles, and those apostles represent the 12 tribes of the nation of Israel. This has been God's plan all along from the very beginning. So then, of course, at the center of all the action is the man, Jesus himself. The center of attention, very much uh, literally the center of all the action, but also in a more cinematic standpoint, there's almost never a scene in any of the Gospels where Jesus isn't either in the foreground or the background. Even a little bit later on, we're going to see that Jesus' cousin John, the baptizer, gets his head cut off by the Jewish king in an attempt to appease the Roman government and the Jewish people. But Jesus is even, he's in the background of that story as well. Uh, so everything that happens in the Gospels really centers on and is framed by Jesus, where he is, what he's doing, who he's looking at, what he says, what time of day it is, if he's asleep, if he's awake. All these things matter in the plot points of how we understand the Gospel itself. So that brings us to Jesus in Capernaum. This is where most of his miracles have happened so far, and the crowd has been so intense that extreme things have been happening. Uh, people have gone so far as to rip the roof off of their neighbor's house just to bring a man into Jesus' presence so that he could receive healing. And now the crowd has grown past that point, and it's pressing on Jesus so hard that verse 20 of Mark 3 tells us that Jesus and his disciples couldn't even eat in the home that they were staying in. There were too many people. Some in the group around Jesus were curious, maybe like you are. Some were eager to see what Jesus would do next. Maybe you've had that experience with God where you can't wait to see what's on the horizon because you know he's always up to something. Others in the group were confused. They weren't sure who Jesus was or what he represented or why he was so hard to understand sometimes. And then there were a select few in the crowd as well, and we talked about this last week, who were angry. 
angry to the point of even blaspheming God because they were so upset about what Jesus taught and what Jesus did. Every extreme was represented. Think of the 12 apostles themselves. From an extreme Zion nationalist zealot, what we called a Sakari or a dagger man, I'm talking about Simon, who's always got a knife on his hip, all the way to a sold-out collaborator with Rome, a tax collector like Levi, who has his name changed to Matthew. Um, everyone from ignorant fishermen all the way to the highly educated intelligentsia were looking for and looking to this Jesus of Nazareth. And at the outskirts of all of that activity and all of that drama, not sure what to think, not sure what to do, was Jesus' biological family, and they were not happy about what they saw. They were not pleased. They did not understand. They did not find themselves fitting into the crowd. Jesus wasn't impressive to them. He wasn't that cool. I don't know if you've ever had this experience where you do something awesome, and then you go back to your hometown, and nobody could possibly care less than they do. I didn't even go to my 10-year high school reunion because I hadn't really done anything that cool in 10 years except gain weight, which isn't that cool. So I was like, I don't think that's really worth doing. But I've had these encounters when Andy and I have gone back to East Texas, or I've seen them in her life when we visit Dallas where she grew up. You want to share with people what you've done, but it's all just kind of not that cool because they know you and you're still that brat with the stinky diaper that colored on the walls with black Sharpie, and they can't really get over that. And so this is the experience that Jesus' family is having. They encounter Jesus, and because they knew him previously as a son and as a brother, they don't see him to be divine. They're not thinking, this is amazing that Jesus is finally living into the prophecy that that angel gave our mother Mary all those years ago. No, they think he's out of his mind. They think that he's having some manic episode, some sense of, of psychosis that's causing him to not eat and not sleep and not do the things that a person should do if they're taking good care of themselves, and they're hearing these crazy stories about him kicking demons out of people and healing the sick, and he touched a leper. I mean, they don't even, they're not even sure what to expect. Is he going to have leprosy all over his body next time they encounter him? They are not primarily experiencing him as God in the flesh. They are primarily experiencing him as the boy who grew up down the hall in their home, and they didn't think it was going to be like this. So they'd come all the way from Nazareth. Mark told us that they were coming back in verse 21. I want to read you that so you can see it for yourself. Uh, he says that when Jesus' family heard that the crowd was so large that Jesus could not eat, they went out to restrain him. That's not friendly. You don't tie people up that you love the first time you see them because you haven't seen them in a while. You're not like, hey, that, you, you seem like things have really changed and maybe you're also out of your mind and I have a rope that you don't know where it can, and I'm going to tie you up now and I'm going to take you back home and we're going to interrogate you about what's wrong with you and why you think you can do these things. These are not faithful believers. These people barely fit into the crowd. They certainly are not part of his disciples and not a one of them is an apostle by name in the Bible. So they're just out there and they're wondering what is wrong with Jesus? What is he doing? And this crowd is about to find out that Jesus' mother and brothers came down from Nazareth to physically remove Jesus from the situation and to return him home until what they perceived, as I said before, is some kind of psychosis wore off in his life. So what do they do? Mark tells us that they pass along a message. Why would they have to pass along a message? Because they're outside. They have to penetrate all these barriers to get all the way to Jesus. They don't have a cell phone number. They can't just ring him. They have to find a way to get a message to a man who's already inside a house that's so overfilled with people that no one can even move their arms to eat. They're just packed in like sardines. So they do. Jesus' mother or one of his brothers says to somebody on the edge, hey, we're related to him. I'm sure you probably heard that before, but we're actually telling you the truth. We're not just groupies that want to get close. Uh, you could maybe look and see we have the same eye color, and we're from Nazareth, and we could tell him, like, his favorite swimming hole if you need something to kind of prove that we're who we say we are. 
And so the message begins to pass through the crowd. It passes up into the group of disciples. I would assume eventually, because this happens other places in the Gospels, finally the message arrives at one of the apostles. Maybe it's Peter. It's his house. Maybe it's his brother Andrew, because Peter's too busy trying to make sure that these people don't literally knock the walls of his house out into the street. Somebody finally gets the word up to Jesus, and they say to him that his family has come all the way from Nazareth to bring him back home. Now, why does that matter? Because by the time word gets to Jesus, basically everybody else who's standing there understands what's going on. They've already heard that somebody's there from Jesus' family, that his mother of all people, a very important person in an honor-bound culture like the one Jesus was born into, that she came in the flesh to see him. So word gets up to him, and everybody kind of already has their mind made up. If you and I were standing there and we lived in that culture, even if we didn't, even if we lived in this culture like we do, and somebody's mom came to see them at a show, at a concert, at a book reading, at a teaching event, and they passed word up to that famous person, hey, I really need to see you for a second, wouldn't you assume that probably, if that relationship wasn't destroyed for some reason, that that person would step down out of the spotlight and go and speak with his mother privately because it's his mom? Of course he would, right? So what Jesus does next is shocking. It's shocking to us in this culture. I believe it's shocking to people all over the world. I've heard this passage read and taught on four different continents in my life. And in each of those contexts, whether the culture is patriarchal, matriarchal, family-oriented, independent, traditional, new, doesn't matter. When Jesus says what he says next, everybody gets a little chill and gets a little nervous because it makes them feel the same way that they felt when they were a kid and they did something wrong and their mom yelled their full name, first, middle, and last, down the hallway. And they knew something was coming for them that wasn't going to be good. It feels disrespectful. It feels a little bit challenging. And I would say, especially in the sense of where we've been so far in Mark, like these first three chapters, Jesus hasn't really done anything offensive yet, has he? Not for us. I mean, we're not Pharisees, so we don't really care if it seems like he's breaking the law, especially once he explains himself. It feels good to us. This is the first moment, and Jesus will do it again, I'll just warn you, where he does something that's very hard to wrap our minds around. So if you feel confused by Jesus saying to his mother, who's my mother, if that seems uncomfortable to you, or like maybe a decision that you wouldn't or shouldn't make with your own mother, great, you're in good company. It's going to take us a little bit of work to explain what Jesus is not saying, what he is saying, and what that has to do for you and I. Now, I want to point out to you the way that Matthew tells this same story. We'll read this really quickly. This comes to us from Matthew chapter 12. Matthew recalls the situation happening like this, okay? While Jesus was still speaking to the crowds, his mother and brothers came and stood outside asking to speak to him. So that sounds about like the same story. Someone told Jesus, look, your mother and your brothers are standing outside, and they want to speak to you. To the one who had said this, Jesus replied and asked, who is my mother and who are my brothers? And then pointing, so this is a little bit different. In Mark's version, Jesus just looks at the disciples. In Matthew's version, he points at them. So he's being emphatic. He's trying to make a, a point, no pun intended. He says, here are my mother and my brothers, for whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and my sister and my mother. You'll notice in Matthew's memory, Jesus didn't just look toward his disciples, right? But he points at them so that there would be no question what he means. He doesn't want us to misinterpret Mark's version of the story. Because maybe Jesus just made a passing glance, right? Maybe a fly flew by and he just turned his head and everybody thought he was talking to the disciples. No, Matthew makes it clear. He picked his finger up and pointed at this group of people and said, this is my family. Which implies that the people outside, his biological family, his family of origin, might not be his family. Or if they are, they must be a different kind of family, a different type, a different category of family from the ones in the room. 
Now, it doesn't seem to matter really where you come from. When Jesus says these words, it doesn't feel very good. Uh, and I think that this is probably as good a time as any to tell you that if you don't usually attend church here at True North, I did not pick this passage special for Mother's Day. Uh, it picked me in a way. We plan our sermons way in advance, and it's just really kind of funny how a combination of sickness and travel have pushed this sermon down the line to the point that it would fall on the one day a year when Hallmark wants to tell you that you really need to celebrate mothers, and here's Jesus saying, who's my mother to his own mother, okay? I'm not doing that to try to slam dunk you guys at all. Just consider Jesus must have a sense of humor. This is exhibit A. So, okay, back to Mark. In Hebrew culture, family is sacred. This is a big deal. This is a huge moment, very tense. It's not just important. It is central to society. It is God-ordained on a family-by-family basis. If you are born in the region of Israel around the time that Jesus is alive, you grow up believing that you were born to your parents specifically on purpose. God chose you for them, and God chose them for you. So when you begin to question the authority or the position or the validity of one of your parents, you're not just questioning them, you're questioning God the Creator. You are making, in a way, a sacrilegious or blaspheming religious statement by choosing not to immediately submit yourself to the authority of either your mother or your father. For this reason, we can feel sure that Jesus has shocked everybody present. That the mood has gone from a mixture between a celebration uh, and maybe the feeling of the inside of a doctor's office, which is a weird vibe, but people are getting healed and they're getting delivered and they're finding salvation. We've shifted from that where it's relatively loud and people are packed in and it's hot and there's a lot going on to this moment where I would like to think that everything goes cold and quiet. Because what does Jesus mean? What could he possibly mean? What is he trying to say about his mother? The crowd, the disciples, the apostles, especially his own mother are shocked. Think of Mary. Mary who nursed baby Jesus, who clothed him, who held Jesus every time he fell and hurt himself as he was growing up, who changed all of Jesus' diapers, who taught Jesus to read so that he could go to the temple and read the scrolls and learn the Old Testament that he's now teaching in a new way. Mary who in every way loved Jesus from infancy into his one-of-a-kind manhood. Mary who traveled probably on foot from Nazareth to Capernaum just to check in on her boy and to offer to do whatever it took to help him in his moment of need. Mary was crushed. And that's part of why this is one of the hardest teachings of Jesus. So here's what I want us to do with the remainder of our time. I want to try to explain to you how even Mary, in her honor-bound culture, in that moment of having to face down these harsh words from Jesus, probably misunderstood him initially. So you're in very, very good company if you're struggling to wrap your head around this. And I want to rapidly do four things with the rest of our time. I want to tell you what Jesus is not saying. I want to then tell you what I think he is saying. And I want to trace two implications from what Jesus is saying into our daily lives. So if you're taking notes, this would be a great time to write some of these things down. What is Jesus not saying? Jesus is not saying that your family of origin is meaningless. Now, I use the phrase family of origin instead of biological family because in Jesus' day, adoption was extremely uncommon to the point that only the very wealthy would do it. There was a sense of responsibility that was shared between families already. So it was typical for aunts or uncles or grandparents to raise children if their parents died or were unfit or were unable. Uh, but there just weren't the problems that we face in exactly the same way that caused parents to lose custody of their children or endanger their children. There was no foster care system in Jesus' day is what I'm trying to say. 
And we can be thankful that that hasn't always been necessary in every culture in the world. It's certainly necessary in ours. But for Jesus, biological family usually is family of origin. For us, it can be many things. Family of origin is the home in which you were raised or the group of people who should have offered you a home and didn't and still somewhat raised you or maybe just ignored you and neglected you and you raised yourself. But it's the group of people who played that primary, shaping, formative role in your life. It's tempting, I think, at face value to interpret Jesus' questions about his mother, his words about who his real family is, to mean that what family you're born into and what family raises you are, like, not a big deal, inconsequential, or that maybe they somehow make less of a difference in shaping you than a spiritual family would. Even Jesus himself is not saying that he had or intended in the future to sever his own ties with his family. We know that eventually one of his brothers becomes a disciple and ends up writing one of the letters that's present in the New Testament of your Bible. We know that at Jesus' crucifixion, as he's hanging on the cross, one of his last thoughts is, is for his mother. He turns to the disciple John, brother of James, the two sons of thunder, and he says to John, would you please care for my mother when I'm gone? This man is not intending to stiff-arm his family or insult anybody on its own, but he's willing to say something hard to introduce and teach a new truth, a truth that is so close to something that everybody in his culture had grasped that it had to be differentiated, it had to be split apart so that people could understand Jesus isn't just retconning something old, he's building something brand new for his followers. Now I want you to hear me clearly, okay? It's not a Christian idea that you have to turn your back on your biological family in order to follow Christ, but at the same time, in the same way that Jesus isn't calling a victim back to their abuser in order to just be abused again and again. Jesus is also not calling people who need to sever their ties with their biological family because there are sometimes good reasons, reasons of sanity, reasons of safety, to, to build a barrier and to draw a line in the sand. Jesus is not telling you that if you're a Christian, you have to sprint back across those lines and tear down those boundaries and put yourself back in a position of danger. Not at all. The point stands. Jesus is not saying that your family of origin is meaningless. So what is he saying? He's saying that the kingdom of God is a better and more permanent family, that there's room in his categories for your family of origin and a new kind of family, but you don't have to abandon your biological family or your family of origin in order to follow Jesus. That's not what Jesus says. That's what cult leaders say. If you're not familiar with the way that cults work, one of the first steps in processing into a cult is that cult does everything in its power to sever all of your previous existing relationships because they kind of know that what they're teaching you is crazy and if you stay connected to people who love you, eventually somebody's going to drive out to the middle of the woods wherever the cult compound is and come get you and save you. Jesus is not like that. Jesus wants to add to your life, not take away a sense of belonging to your family. He wants to rebuild and reframe and fix what's broken between you and your biological relatives. He does not demand that you permanently turn your back on your relatives in order to follow him. So I want to make that po point clearly. What he's trying to say is that there is a deeper kind of familiarity, or you might think of the word kinship if you're a little bit older. It's deeper than flesh and it's deeper than blood. A spiritual kinship that is established not just by shared genetics, but by a shared uh, position underneath the saving love of God by Jesus' life and his death and his resurrection. For you and I who are found in this new kind of family, we're not bound by last name. We're bound now by the Spirit of God. Think of it this way. If you are biologically related to someone else, there are probably some physical factors that run in your family 
that let other people know that you have an older brother, a younger sister, or you look like your mom, or you look like your dad. It could be baldness, it could be height, it could be the build that you are, it could be the tone of your voice, the pattern of your facial hair, it could be the color of your eyes. There's lots of indicators when a family lives in one place for a long time that these people may be related to each other as we bump into them at the local high school or out at the grocery store, etc. For you and I, when we are spiritually related to one another, which happens as we follow Jesus, as we become part of his disciples, he builds a new family out of us. When that happens, our kinship is not marked by physical appearance anymore. It's marked by mutual obedience. This is why Jesus leverages obedience to God's will as the thing that ties him together to this new kind of family. Now hear me clearly. In the same way that Jesus is not trying to send victims back to their abusers, I am not saying to you, Another easy-to-misunderstand idea here. I'm not saying to you that by being obedient, you will make your way into God's family. That's the opposite of what's true. What Jesus is saying is that there is a group of people out there who are God's family, who have been called by him and saved by him, by his grace alone, by faith in him alone. And the way that you will know who those people are is they will be obedient. They will live obediently out of having been saved and put into God's family, not if you're outside of God's family, you can work your way in with obedience. It's the same point Jesus was making in another gospel where he told his disciples, the only way the world will know who you are is based on how you love one another. Love, believe it or not, though we often think of it as this kind of free-flowing, organic, unbound thing, real love is rigid. Real love is built on truth. Real love has rules. Real love takes care of other people. It's not fickle. It doesn't sway and flow with culture and idea changes. And so what Jesus is saying is obedience to him will look like love for one another, which will say to the world that we are a family. But that love happens a certain way. That love is only love for God and love for neighbor when it's sourced in a desire to follow Jesus, which is why Jesus starts by saying, follow me. And then he says, love one another and obey my Father's will. These become the markers or the indicators. These become the hair color and the eye color and the sound of voice for us, a spiritual family. It's the way other people know who we are, who are not part of this family now, and it's the way that we recognize each other when we're out and about. I don't know if you've ever had the opportunity to go on a mission trip, or maybe you've just bumped into somebody at the grocery store in town who goes to another church, but once in a while, you meet somebody, and you know they're a Christian before you know their name. I don't know if you've had that experience before. There's a sense of spiritual camaraderie that we share with a kind of people who are peacemakers. Not people who make war on culture in Jesus' name, but people who, like our Christ and rabbi, swing wide the doors and say, you are welcome here, we love you, we care for you, we want what's best for you, here is truth, here is an unconditional love, here is a relationship you can never break. Occasionally, you run across somebody like that, and you don't even know their name yet, and you can sense that very probably the Spirit of God is alive and well in their life. These are the ways that we begin to recognize one another inside of this new family. This is the point that Jesus is making in verse 35, when he indicates to his disciples, this is my family now. That's not a, a, a statement that's supposed to feel exclusive. He's not trying to say something about his mother and brothers outside that they don't matter, or he wants them gone, or who cares what they say. And he's not just being shocking for shocking's sake. He's trying to present to this group of people that from the moment he came out of the 40 days in the wilderness and began preaching what, what the Bible calls the gospel of God, the good news of salvation, that he has been building and participating in a new kind of family. He's clarifying what's already true. He's not shocking people 
to try to jar them or, or make the headlines and become some kind of celebrity. Jesus is simply stating what already exists. He's saying, if you're looking for my family, they're here. So yes, there may be people outside who share my genetics, but I want all of you who are gathered here to understand this is not just a movement. This is not a, a business deal. You're not just chunks in my downline on the spiritual pyramid scheme of Christianity. You are now my family. And therefore, don't be surprised when I treat you like my family, like you're my mother and my brothers here, because you obey God and that unites us. That is the strongest glue that exists, stronger than blood, stronger than genetics, stronger than sharing a family of origin, is what the Spirit of God will do, how it can unite each of us one to another. So Jesus is trying to communicate a sense of superiority, that this new family is better, that it's more permanent, that it lasts forever. He teaches in this way through the rest of the gospel, so we'll return to this theme in future weeks as we encounter it. But the point I want you to understand is the members of this new spiritual family are more loyal than the members of your family of origin are to you. The members of this new spiritual family are eternal. The relationship can't break permanently. Sure, it can hit a rift. You can have a hard time. You and somebody else might not be getting along at life group right now. That's okay. You should be honest about that, and you should deal with it. But the love that exists between the two of you will outlast your anger, your hurt feelings, whatever it is that has caused this rift. And again, hear me clearly. It doesn't mean that it's your responsibility to just open yourself up to anybody who intends you harm or evil. Not at all. But when and where you find another believer who also wants to love and serve God with their life, you can trust that eventually, even if it's not today, the Spirit of God will turn that person into the kind of person that not only can you trust, but you should trust, that you need. God is providing for you something that you need, a resource that you can't produce, which is people who love him more than you and therefore love you correctly in a way that can't be broken by circumstance or hurt feelings. Because this new family is built on Jesus, it is in a way more demanding, but also the love and acceptance that you find in him and among other believers, it's far more satisfying because it's permanent, because you don't have to worry, am I going to cross the line tomorrow and make all these people angry enough that they abandon me the same way that my parents or my siblings did in my biological family? Don't miss that although Jesus loved his mother and brothers for 30 years with as much affection and loyalty as anybody could, to him his new spiritual family is more meaningful and dear to him than they are. So, good or bad behavior can't make you more or less in or out of God's family, but obedience to God, or at least the intention to obey God. And maybe you get it wrong over and over and over again, but your heart's desire to be in step with the Spirit, that is a binding family trait for those of us who find ourselves inside the family of God. So, Jesus is not saying that your family of origin is meaningless. He is saying that the kingdom of God is a better and more permanent family, and there are at least two implications that we'll rapidly address together of what that means. If Jesus is offering us a new eternal family that is better and lasts longer than the one we were born into, what does that mean and what should we do with it? The first implication is this, that obedience is central to our eternal family. Now, I've talked about this a little bit already, so I'll move quickly through this point, but the idea is not, again, that obedience is the ladder that you climb that earns you your card, that gets you into the VIP club of Jesus' family. Far from it. Obedience is the family trait that we share. It's the indicator to each other and a lost and dying world that we actually do love Jesus, that we're not just grandstanding or virtue signaling in church speak, but that we have an intention to live differently and that we're able to live differently because the Spirit of God indwells us. Obedience is key to our experience 
when it comes to God's family. Even for Jesus, it was obedience to the Father that functioned as the only trustworthy indicator of whether or not someone had Jesus' best interests in mind. Jesus went so far as in John 4, he said, that obedience to God the Father was actually his food. In John chapter 4, Jesus has had a pretty famous encounter with a woman at a well in a place called Samaria. And as she's leaving to go back to town and tell everybody that she's just met this guy who knows everything about her, even though she didn't tell him anything, Jesus' disciples come lumbering back from lunch, and they brought him like a sandwich wrapped in paper or something, and they offer it to him, and he says, I'm not hungry. And they ask each other, did somebody else feed Jesus? Did one, one of you guys trying to, like, take my spot? I'm the lunch guy. Maybe it's Peter. He's like, I get lunch. Nobody else gets lunch. Anyways, so they ask Jesus finally, and here's what he says. This is John chapter 4. Jesus says, my food is to do the will of the one who sent me. What? Have you ever asked somebody to go to lunch, and they're like, I can't go to lunch because I won't be hungry because I'm going to be serving God? And I don't get hungry when I serve God. What? No, Jesus probably literally is saying something that's a little bit above my pay grade, but also in a representative way, he's communicating that the will of God is sustaining for him. It's life. It's not just obedience because something bad will happen if you don't. It is a way into a kind of life that you, you will never work your way into on your own. It's living out the invitation that God has given you. God's will was totally central to Jesus' life central to his death, central to his resurrection. We often think of Jesus as living moment to moment, right, in the active will of God the Father, but even his death was representative of submission to God's will. In John 14, 36, Jesus prayed to God, and he said, Father, all things are possible for you, so remove this cup from me. He makes his request, but then he says, yet not what I will, but what you will. I will do it your way, God. Jesus is not begrudgingly submitting to the Father. He doesn't hate that he has to make this decision. He's saying to God, I will do what you want. That is what it has always been about for me. It's the, it's the pivot point of my entire life. All of Jesus' life hinged on obedience to the Father. In Mark chapter 10, Jesus actually revisits the idea that God gives us each an eternal family. And he says this. I have these verses for you on the screen. Jesus is teaching, and he says, I tell you the truth. There is no one who has, now catch this, who has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields so he's saying, everybody you've ever known or all the stuff you have, anybody who's left that behind and done it for my sake and the sake of the gospel, these people will receive in this age. He's not just talking about heaven. On the earth, your real lived life will look like this, a hundred times as much as what you gave up. Homes. Now, we think big homes on the hillside. He's talking about a place to live, a safe space for you and your family. Brothers and sisters, mothers and children, family, fields, and persecution, uh, sprinkles that in there a little bit, like biting into a pepper seed in a meal. Oh, gosh, Jesus, persecutions. But that's part of the mix, too. And in the age to come, then, will be for you eternal life. Jesus is again communicating. Those who are obedient, those who live for my sake, for the sake of Jesus and the sake of his gospel, they will have everything they need and more. And part of that, a big piece of it, will be a spiritual family that will never leave, will never abandon, and cannot fail you or what you need. So obedience is central to our eternal family. The second implication is that disobedience then, this is logical here, disintegrates our eternal family. Now we've seen this play out in our physical families, haven't we? Every single one of us has seen our biological families disintegrate, rip apart at the seams because of disobedience. No one in this room has a family tree without limbs that have been broken off or withered or died on the trunk even though they refuse to leave. And this happens primarily in two ways. One is explicit, and you won't really need me to say much to understand what I mean. The other, though, is subtle. 
And unfortunately, the disintegration of the family that can happen inside churches is, is considered to be polite and is often widely accepted by people like you and I who claim Christ as our Savior. So let's start with the easy one. Uh, disobedience disintegrates our families, first of all, explicitly in all forms of what we'll call intentional wickedness, just going against God, just deciding that you know better, God doesn't matter, you're not going to do it his way, who cares what he thinks, he's old, he's dead, he's not real, he's a bigot, whatever, so we're going to do it our way, and we'll find our way into a new family. You hear this a lot. It's present in TV shows, it's present in music, in books, especially in the nonfiction kind of psychological family planning world. There's this idea that a family is anything that you and I can tape together with duct tape and decide, okay, all these things now have something in common, so this is a family now. And it doesn't work, and people just get hurt more and more and more every day. Children suffer, their minds are broken, their bodies are abused, but we keep calling it family because we wish that we could have something other than what God made us. Because why? Because God's version of family holds us accountable. And we hate that. We would rather hurt all kinds of people that are close to us than ever have to answer for our crimes. It's the way we're wired, unfortunately, because of sin. So our families disintegrate, and our eternal family is not immune to this. If obedience is the external indicator that we have found a new kind of family centered around Jesus, then willingly walking away from him is going to tear this eternal family apart. It's going to hurt other people when you actively live in sin on purpose, not just you. It's going to damage your children when you and your spouse refuse to figure out a way to mutually submit and walk in humility in your home. It's going to hurt future generations who share your last name and your hair color and your build when you refuse to confess sin where it's present, to bring the real interior state of your life before God's throne and surrender yourself to him. And here's what it usually starts with. Somebody hurts our feelings and we take a step back from the church. And life group doesn't feel safe anymore. Or our spouse decides they're going to pick on something that's a little too sensitive or we begin to see patterns of life emerge that came from our family of origin. We hear our father's words come out of our mouth, or we see our mother's scowl staring back at us in the mirror. And we go, I can't deal with this. All I've ever done for my whole life is plan so that I never have to become a version of this person that I ran away from. I can't do it. And we just collapse in on ourselves. And I've said this to you before, but choosing not to bring everything in your life to Jesus is a recipe to die with all of the same problems that you have today. It may take you 70 more years until your body goes in the ground, but you won't change without the Spirit of God. Hear me that that doesn't just affect you, that that affects the people around you, and that gets as big as and as effectual as messing with the church. And I don't say that as an organizational leader who's scared for my job. I'm telling you, person to person, you're going to cut and damage people around you when you choose to be disobedient, even if you dress it up in a way where maybe nobody else can tell. The effects will be present and evident and we will suffer for it. And because we are an eternal family, we'll stay. And we'll try to forgive you. And we'll try to work through it. But don't lie to yourself in a very independent, single-minded culture that you live in, that you can do whatever you want behind closed doors and in the dark and it won't affect anybody else. It's devastating to the rest of us. Disobedience disintegrates our eternal family. And it does that through intentional wickedness. The second way, though, is maybe harder to hear. Disobedience disintegrates our families through what I'll call domestic idolatry. This is the one that's polite, that's acceptable in a lot of churches, that Christians almost celebrate each other for, um, and it goes like this. It, domestic idolatry is what one author calls familial narcissism. This is a little harsher way to say it. It happens 
when we begin to replace Jesus and his kingdom family with our own biological families. We replace Jesus with our marriage. We replace Jesus with our children, their future, their goals, their chance to go play professional sports. Whatever the thing is that's a mirage in the desert that's making us think, if I could just do the right things and play my cards right and move this direction, everything will work out and we'll be one of the one in a million who hits the jackpot when it comes to money or where we live or job opportunity or my kid's future. We begin to treat our homes like they are temples and if we are not careful, we will worship our children. It's everywhere. We will do everything in our power to make sure that our children are never uncomfortable, that they like everything that we ever asked them to do, that they have all the opportunities that we felt like we didn't have when we were children, and it's distorted because in a way, we still live as if our own family of origin exists, as if it's present. We run from our parents, and in doing so, we give them all of the control in our lives. Because every decision that we make is in response to what they did to us that we hate so badly. And I don't know if you know this about yourself, but we're not good at subtlety in general. We're not good at kind of like finding a middle ground when it comes to decision making or finding a way forward. Oftentimes when it comes to the way that we relate to our own family of origin, we either duplicate what we grew up with or we go the total opposite. There is no middle ground. And so we either make all the same mistakes that mom and dad made, or we make all the other mistakes that they didn't make that are opposite of their mistakes. But the opposite of our parents' mistakes is not good parenting. The opposite of bad, abusive people is not good, right, healthy people. We aren't able to process it that way. We just make a new set of bad decisions. It's only by coming to Jesus and submitting ourselves to him that we figure out what the heck God had in mind when he laid out the blueprint for the first family. There is a plan and there is a way forward, but elevating each other or ourselves to boost our egos or to make our children the supreme rulers of our homes, that ain't it, my people. I'm telling you, it's not going to work. It happens every generation. We find a new way to put a nice new paint job on holding our kids up as the most important thing in the world, and it always fails us, and it fails them, and they can tell because they grow up and become you, and then you look back and go, mom and dad didn't know, but you do it again yourself. It's a cycle that repeats itself viciously and wickedly. And maybe it's not just the elevation of our children. Maybe it's things like withholding affection or punishing disloyal children, breeding psychological disorders like self-fulfilling prophecies where unloved children grow up to bind the next generation with their own version of generational, circumstantial love. We do this to each other. We're not going to run forward into a bright new future just because we're new, a new generation. We, we can't just think we can solve all of our parents' problems. The only ingredients we have to do that are the ones they gave us. We have to go to Jesus. We have to bring everything to him, including our families. And whereas intentional wickedness reigns and it resigns itself to permissive destruction as it approves or even pursues self-destructive patterns of behavior, domestic idolatry perpetrates a kind of parenting that propagates possessive destruction choking out the life of children who are made to bear, forced to bear the soul-crushing weight of their parents' open emotional wounds. So we've all been disintegrated to varying degrees. Some of us have experienced disobedience in our families of origin. We've seen that slowly rot out relationships. It kind of results in a sort of like perpetual cold war emotionally where mom and dad just try to get along but mostly hate each other. Others of us experience the splintering of the family tree as a series of catastrophic moments, lightning strikes, so violent, so effective that only burned out scars remain behind on the family tree to tell the story. So what do we do? Jesus' question really jumps out and grabs me in light of the shared tragedy of our human condition. 
It's a good question, because if things are really this bad, who is my mother? Right? If that's all I have behind me on the family tree waiting for me is a messed up set of, of, of ingredients that I'm going to just rebuild the same old generational problems with, who really is my mother? Who really can I trust? Who are my brothers? Not just in name, not just in genetics, but in action, in love. That's the question our hearts are asking. It's the same one Jesus asked that day. Who then really are our families? Even on a day dedicated to mothers, we all know that the best we can do for one another is less than what we really need. Even our mothers, who we can honor and say thank you to. We don't need to belittle their sacrifice or their effort to be able to acknowledge that they themselves are imperfect. What choice do they have? They're made of the same stuff as us. This is true for every relationship that we'll ever have except for one. There's only one relationship, and it's not your relationship with your mom that can fulfill you and build you up and save you. It is your relationship, or lack thereof, with Jesus of Nazareth. From him comes the love that never fails. From him comes the presence that never steps away, that doesn't get its feelings hurt, that won't give you the silent treatment, that doesn't make you feel guilty because you threw away that old family heirloom that's been packed in a box 16 times that you've moved across the country. Jesus wants your heart, your inner person, your character, and your life. And he can reach it and he can build it. But you have to give yourself to him. It's in his family which is eternal and better and stronger and more loyal and more helpful and more moving and more mutually respectful and at the bottom of all of that divine in nature. It's that family where every crooked and withered and burnt out and tragic and disappointing branch will be made brand new. That's the hope of the gospel. That's what Jesus is saying in that packed out room in Capernaum. He's not saying, mother and brothers outside, you failed me and I hate you. Get out of here. He's saying, look at these awful people that I didn't even know a couple of months ago. We're family now. Wouldn't you like to know what can cause a group of strangers, two men like Levi and Simon, who hate each other and literally want each other dead in the street, what can make men like that brothers? Only the love of Jesus. Only the sacrifice of God in the flesh in your place. So if you're a mother today, again, we say thank you, and we honor you, and we appreciate what you've done. But if you're a good mother, the most important work that you've ever done is point your children to Christ. And it's a work that I want to join you in right now and just ask you today to consider what is the foundation, the bedrock of your life? Is it your parents? Is it your children? Is it some past or future moment that haunts you? It doesn't have to be. It can be Christ on the cross in your place. It can be Jesus teaching and loving. It can be the active spirit of God and God the Father in heaven with a master plan for your life that won't fail you. That's available to you. As Jesus said, all you have to do is repent because the kingdom of God is at hand. So, the hope that we have in life and death is that we who are far from Jesus would be brought near to him. And as we are, that there we would be made brand new to walk in a new kind of obedient life with God, a new family in Jesus' name. That's what I want for you. It's what God wants for you too. So I want to pray for you about that right now. Ask that you join me to pray, please. Father, thank you for your word and your work in our lives. Thank you, God, for the mercy that you've shown us. Some of us in the room have done our best as parents, and the mercy that you've shown us is that you continue to give us chances to get it right with our children. Others of us, God, are not. We are our children, and we look back on a, a childhood or a family of origin that maybe was wonderful. Maybe we enjoyed God. There's mercy for us in that that you provided for us, and for many of us, we would say the opposite is true, that everything behind us today is negative, it's haunting, it's challenging, it's painful, it was damaging in some sense. And so we thank you for mercy, God, that that's not the end of our story. On a day like today, we ask you again that you would alleviate our fear and our pain, 
scars that we carry, the wounds that may be very fresh this year, and that you would give us peace and remind us that we are bound to each other. And regardless of the nature of any of our human relationships, we have in you and in your church and in your people something eternal and supremely valuable, something that we need, real love, unconditional love. So Father, we love you and we trust you 